0: Pray with me. Father in heaven, that is our hope. Jesus alone, there is nothing else that we can turn to, no other place we can run to find healing, to find refuge, to find wholeness, to find peace. Our hope is in Christ alone. So help us now as we turn to your word to know why that can be so. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Where are you from? It's a common question, right? Like when you are meeting someone for the first time that's you know right up there with what do you do or how many kids you have, something to that effect. Where, where are you from? The question, it, it actually often gives me a, a little bit of, angst because I lived in eight states by the time I was seven years old. So I'm kind of like, ah, uh, which which one do I, I choose here? Where where am I from? And we ask the question because it gives us context. I was just talking a little bit uh, with with Pastor Jacob this morning. My wife thought that the, the Hatfields at some point were were from the South. I'm like, no, I'm I'm pretty sure. Like he. Born and raised here in Monticello, like it gives context to know, like man, his whole life here in this place, in, in this community. And the, the same is true uh, for for all of us. Like as we interact with someone, it's like, oh, you're from, you know, fill in the blank. Oh, you're from South Carolina. Like, oh, that's given me some understanding of who you are and your your story, where it is that you're coming from. And this question, where are you from, it's a question we've got to grapple with. As Christians, like who, who are we as a people? Like as God has called us to himself, who are we? And I know you've been walking through the, the letter to the Ephesians and it talks a good deal about this new people, right? That, that we all were strangers to the covenants of promise. We were aliens to the commonwealth of Israel. And yet here we are. Here we are, gathered this morning, in the name of Christ, laying hold to those very promises. How, how can this be? Like, what, what is our story as a people? Where, where is it that we're from? How, how has God done this in drawing us together? So knowing where we're from, knowing our history, our story, gives us that kind of uh, setting, that kind of context. Like, okay, like I've got a sense of confidence as to who I am because I know where I'm from. So this morning we're going to look at Leviticus 16 to help with that, to, to ground us in that. So if you would turn with me to Leviticus 16. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but this is speaking to the holy day that Israel celebrated each year called the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement. So look at Leviticus 16, I'll read excerpts here from the chapter as we consider God's word for us today. So Moses records for us in Leviticus 16, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come in at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash round his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Verse 15. And then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with, it, do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. Verse 20, And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Verse 29. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. So this, like I mentioned, is that holiday, the Day of Atonement, which maybe you've seen like pop up in your, your Google calendar here in the last few weeks. It's this Yom Kippur, as the Hebrew just means, Day of Atonement. This is one of the, the high and holy days in the, the calendar year for God's people And as God's people, us, like this is a holy day that is in our history and in our family traditions. So it's good for us to understand what those traditions are and how it is uh, that we are part of this family. Because if if indeed we are strangers and aliens that are now part of this people, we've got to reckon with the, the question of how can this be that us, strangers and aliens, who are sinful rebels. Like how how is it that God can dwell with us? How is it that we can be his people? How can he dwell in our midst and we are not immediately obliterated by the blazing holiness of God? How can this come about? How does it even make sense that we can sing the songs that we have about Jesus and his blood and how he's an atonement? Like how can this be The Day of Atonement speaks into this very reality for us. And so what we are seeing here, as you track along in this chapter, in Leviticus 16, are are four phases of what develops here on this special high and holy day. Four phases that that mark this day apart as distinct and different, even from all of the sacrifices that Israel was called to offer. So four phases. First, it's preparation. Preparation. Then propitiation, expiation, and incompletion. Four phases of this. Now before we jump right in... And try to understand what it is that's going on here on this special day. We've got to understand that the, the first six chapters of Leviticus, I'm like, sure those are like some of the most riveting parts of your year as you're going through your Bible reading plan. Like, oh, I just really want to know all the ins and outs of the sacrificial system that's just so rejuvenating to my soul. Like, probably not, right? But it's important. Like, all right, here's six chapters that God has, has revealed and inspired for his people to know I am holy you are sinful, this needs to be made right somehow, right? So six chapters of different kinds of sacrifices that Israel was to offer. And in these first 10 verses of Leviticus 16, as we look at the preparations that Aaron as the high priest of God was to make, we do well not to just skip right over that first verse. Like the context of this day, like why is it that God has instituted this day? tells us, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. He's referring back to Leviticus 10 when Nadab and Abihu went in before the Lord and offered unauthorized incense before the Lord and in a moment, they died. Like, imagine being Aaron. It's like, okay, God, you you want me to do what? (laughs) You want me to come into your presence? Like, these guys, like, my sons, like, They died when they went in your presence. I'm not so sure, you know, maybe, uh, hey, Joseph, like, come over here. You you can be high priest. You can go do this job, right? I mean, there's probably a little bit of uneasiness uh, in revealing this to to Moses, right? He's trying to, like, maybe assuage some fear, right? As he tells him in in verse 2 that he's telling him, like, here are the preparations that you need to make so that you can come in before me and not die. (laughs) I was like, wow, this this is an important thing here. I could die if I carry out these responsibilities wrongly. And so this is important for us to recognize that these preparations that are made are, are, are for the high priest protection, but for the good of all of the people of God. That we worship, we come before a holy God, and he is not one to be trifled with. And so we do not come into his presence like all chummy and be like, yo, like, what's up, God? Like, there is a a familiarity, there is an intimacy that we do have, which is unfathomably remarkable. Like, it is amazing that we can come with a boldness before the very mercy seat of God in the name of Jesus to make our requests known to him. But we do so wrongly if we presume upon that status. Right? If if we, like Aaron, were to, or Nadab and Abihu especially, just come in however it is that we so please. Watch out. We are dealing with a holy God. And so these preparations of the first 10 verses are here to safeguard Aaron and to safeguard the people of God because we worship the Holy One. We are coming before his blazing holiness. So the redemption that we have, in Christ, right? I mean, the redemption that Israel had through the exodus, that they were so wonderfully redeemed from slavery in Egypt and brought through the sea on dry ground, that does not give them a place to say, like, okay, well, now I can call the shots and I can determine how this relationship is going to go. By no means. By no means. We still worship the holy God. And when we forget that, and we act flippantly in relation to the Lord, we're committing the same grievous error as Nadab and Abihu that paid for that mistake with their lives. So we do well to pay attention here to to what Moses is recording for us as an instruction for us and how it is that we worship. So through the preparation here in these, these 10 verses, As Aaron is gathering these animals and taking the special bath and putting on these special linen clothes, he's getting himself ready. And what he's doing is, he's all the preparation of serving. Like I'm doing something different here. Right, all year long I am serving as high priest, but this day, this day is set apart. I'm coming before the presence of God, and so I'm going about this ritual that is a profound reminder to myself and to God's people that there is something different that is happening on this day, right? As, as he goes into the innermost part of the tabernacle, the, the holy of holies. This was the place on earth that was the unique presence of God, that he was pleased to dwell in the midst of his people that he redeemed in a, in a unique way. And as part of the, the preparation that, that Aaron has to go through, he's got to start with his own sin. He has to make atonement for his own sin. And so he offers... Uh, the bull in sacrifice, and and he prepares the two goats. Now, this most assuredly is just not another day at the office for the high priest. He's going in before the very presence of God, and so he is going through these preparations meticulously. The second phase is propitiation. This is verses 11 through 19. Propitiation. That's a, a theological term for the wrath of God being removed from sinners, right? So so we as as rebellious, sinful people deserve God's just condemnation for our sins. So how is it that 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 wrath is removed? Through propitiation. His his wrath is, is absolved from us. It's removed from us. We get out from underneath it. And on this Special day, on this day of atonement, we see he, the priest, he, he makes atonement for, for three distinct things. He's atoning for three distinct things. First for himself and his priestly family, that, that's what we see in, in verse 11. Then for the, the holy place in verses 12 through 16. And then finally for the altar that is out in front of the tabernacle, verses 17 through 19. Right, so the, this bull is first offered for himself and, and one of the goats is offered on behalf of the people. And offering these sacrifices, it's, it's what the people of Israel were doing all the time, right? I mean, this offering of sacrifice wasn't a, a unique a, a component or attribute on this special day. In fact, like the priests and the Levites, they were like full-time employees, right, at, at the tabernacle. But that means that they were working full-time at the sanctified butcher shop. I mean, you can go and read uh, different accounts of the holy days and especially... If you were to go and read of uh, the, the Jewish historian in the first century, uh, Josephus, he talks about how many animals are being sacrificed. It is confounding. like It just like blows your mind just how many animals are being butchered at the temple. And as you just read those first six chapters, like every time you sin, there's a sacrifice for it. You've you got to traipse your, your goat or your pigeon or your grain, like whatever it is. You've got to bring that thing from home, bring it across town, to church, as it were, and Pastor Jacob's got to butcher that animal for you to make atonement for your sin. They're they're doing this dawn to dusk, processing animals day in and day out. Can you imagine? Pastor Jacob isn't like devoting himself every week to preparing sermons, but day in and day out, he's, he's helping deal with your sin according to God's law by by processing animals, by by butchering animals? Like, that's what he would be giving himself to? No thanks. Like, I I don't want to do that. This is a bloody mess. Like, there's a lot of blood that is going on here at the tabernacle. There's a lot of death. It's a little different on this day. On the Day of Atonement, there's only five. Only five animals are involved in in our our sacrifice. So first, the, the bull... And one goat are killed to make atonement. However, it's different now. It's not for the sin of the people, right? It's on their behalf, but it's to atone for the instruments of sacrifice. It's to atone for the things that are used for the daily sacrifices. One Old Testament scholar, he observed how the standard practice for for making the the sin offering, that's the kind of offering that we're we're talking about here with this bull and, and this goat. The standard practice, though, is changed on this day, because normally, the one who makes the sacrifice, right, so like, I don't know, one of you, uh, Scott, right, Uh, comes up, no, where's Scott? I don't know, doesn't matter, there you are, right, so Scott, he sinned this week, Um, and he he needs to make atonement for his sin, right, And, and he brings the goat before Jacob, and all right, this is what, the, what God said. I need to atone for my sin. Here is my goat. Normally, he would come, bring the, the required animal, and, and Scott would place his, his, his hands on the animal's head, right? And this would be to acknowledge his own sin. Like, yes, I'm, I'm confessing my sin. So instead of just having it be part of the worship service, of, of having an exhortation and, and confessing sin, he lays his hands on the head of that goat and confesses his sin, And as though that sin is now laid on that animal. And it's a recognition that I deserve punishment. And I know the punishment for sin is death. This is what what Scott is is thinking as he he follows God's law here in obedience and and faithfulness. It's a recognition that this animal is going to die in my place. Imagine doing this week in and week out. The practice is different here on the Day of Atonement. That's not what happens with this offering. The priest, he doesn't place his hands on the head of the bull or the goat. It's as though God's wrath has been propitiated. This has happened. Atonement has been made throughout the year for the sins of the people as blood is shed and it is sprinkled according to what is recorded for us. But on this day... That, that, that doesn't happen. It's as though the blood of this bull and goat sucks up all the contamination, right? It's like we, we sin all year long and it, we make atonement and blood is shed for our sin, but now it's like there's all this sin all over the, the instruments of, of the tabernacle. Like all these things that are used for atoning for sin, like now they're tainted. And so on this day of atonement and as though the, the sacrifice that is being made right, by virtue of not uh, seeing that the hands are, are laid and sin is confessed onto this animal. It's like the, the animal's blood like soaks up all the contamination on the, the tools of sacrifice in order that they would be clean. Like, God, how can this be? Like, what's the deal with the blood? How can all this blood atone for sin and remove the, the wrath of God? Like, what is going on here? I think we just see the central place that blood plays in. In life, right? So we read in Leviticus 17, verse 14, that the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. So when Moses records it, he's not making like some metaphysical claim about like some magical force that blood has. It's just the, the simple recognition that if an animal bleeds out, it's, it's going to die. Right? It's just, like the blood is just representative of life. God commanded all of these bloody sacrifices throughout the year, but especially these on the Day of Atonement. He commanded them, essentially conveying to his people, telling his people, I will pass over your sin. If they would so trust in God's promises and make these sacrifices. These sacrifices, the blood, they are to highlight God's holiness and his people's sinfulness. Week in, week out, year by year as the sacrifices are made. As you see the blood caked on the instruments of the tabernacle. It's like, wow, that is disgusting. And so is my sin. So much death. So much blood. So much sin. And yet so much mercy. It isn't just propitiation that's in view not just the, the satisfaction or, or the removal of God's wrath. That's not all that's in view here on this, on the work of this special day. Expiation. That's the third phase of this holiday, verses 20 and through, uh, through 22. 20 through 22, expiation. Right? So we're seeing, and I read these verses for us. This is where the, the other goat is now taken, the, the live one that was, was set aside for Azazel. That one is now brought forward, right? They, they cast lots, you can go and read, they cast lots for the, the goats, and, and one is selected to be that, that sin offering that, uh, whose blood is, is spilt and, and atones for uh, the, the tabernacle and, and the, the instruments, right? The other goat still alive, that was set aside for Azazel, scholars, like, They don't know what that means. Like the word, maybe we can make some good guesses. Like maybe it's a demon. Maybe it's a location out in the wilderness. Maybe it's a word that just means scapegoat. We don't know what it means. But what what this animal, what this goat is doing is very clear. Like the function that it serves is very plain for us. So this animal, the priest does place his hands on the goat's head. And he does confess the sin of all the nation of Israel. But rather than killing this goat, this one is handed over to someone who's ready and waiting to walk this animal out into the wilderness to a place where it will never find its return back into the camp of Israel. So the theological importance of what's going on here in this Transaction, like in this part of the holidays, recorded for us in verse 22. Right? Moses, he records for us that this goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. So this is the concept of expiation. Expiation. God's wrath against sin. His wrath is removed in propitiation. And in expiation, our sin is removed from our midst. And so we read in Psalm 103, 12, that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Like do, are, you, are you tracking here with the, the layers of grace and mercy that are on display on the special day of atonement, that, that tremendous mercy is being poured out upon God's people, that he would remove his wrath, looking to these sacrifices, looking to the death of these animals in place of the death of his people. What mercy to show to rebellious sinners like you and me. And what grace upon grace that our sin is then taken away from us. So friend, you you don't have to go on feeling the the burden, the, the weight of the guilt and shame of your sin. How much more so now in Christ that our sin is expiated. It is removed from us. It has no bearing on your life or in how God looks at you. It is removed from you. You are cleansed and you are made whole so that that no longer has any influence on who you are. Right? Where are you from? Like that that history, that context, it is not most foundationally grounded and rooted in your sin because of Jesus, because of the expiating work of Christ and being the very thing that the Day of Atonement anticipates. This doctrine of expiation is a wonderful thing. That we would not be burdened down by the shame of our sin. And so we're seeing here that the judgment is not the only thing that is slaked, right? I mean, that happens on the Day of Atonement. Judgment against sin is slaked, but our very sin is taken away, it's gone, never to be seen again. Wrath is removed and purity is restored. Now, at this point, on the Day of Atonement, up and through verse 22, right, mentioned we had five animals that are, are part of the sacrifice. Right? Three of the five have been accounted for as we shift and look to the, the fourth phase. Incompletion. Incompletion. So atonement is made, but now everyone that was involved has got to get cleaned up. That's what's recorded for us in verses 23 through 34. The high priest, Aaron, right? He's, he's got to now take off the special linen clothes and he's got to bathe again. Right? Now, the person who leads the scapegoat out into the wilderness, when they return, that individual's got to bathe and change clothes. Those individuals that are appointed to drag the carcasses of the, the bull and the goat that were sacrificed to, to take those carcasses outside the camp and burn them up completely. Right? They're, they're tainted by sin and it has to be removed from the presence of the people of Israel. When they return to camp, they've got to bathe and be cleansed also. They have to change clothes. So what we're seeing by Moses recording for this, you know, and God commanding this, is that these individuals, they are all still tainted by sin. Like it's like this yucky film that's like on them like, uh, I'm not gonna be able to think of something off the top of my head now, like, uh, doing some dirty work, right, or, like, summer, right, you're, you're mowing and, like, bushwhacking stuff and, like, trying to clean up the yard, and it's all dirty and dusty, or, I've never done this, but, like, you're working on the farm and doing, like, uh, making hay and throwing hay bales up, right, and it's just, like, it's caked on you and the, the sweat, so you just, like, have this film, and it's just, like, ugh, like, it's just all over me, like, I got, I got to go get changed and cleaned up. Like, this is what is going on with these individuals. Like, sin is just, like, caked on them because of their engagement in this Day of Atonement. They need to change. Sin is still present. And so we've got these two other animals, these two rams that are now offered as burnt offerings, right? The first two animals, a sin offering, the one goat removed as the scapegoat, expiation. These last two animals follow the the pattern of the burnt offering, being slaughtered and entirely consumed in the fire of the altar. This day of atonement, with all of these requirements, with all of these sacrifices, we're told, they're commanded, to be done perpetually. To be a statute forever, year after year. So the, the clear display that sin is still tainting these individuals coupled with the command to do these practices year after year after year after year points to the reality that they are incomplete. They, they don't actually get the job done. So, so truly it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And that is the very point of all of these sacrifices, that is the very point that God instituted them. That the, the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the blood and, and the feasts, all of these things were a, a pointer. They were a signpost, a big neon blinking sign pointing not to the, the foundational reality that sin is dealt with, but that God would one day decisively deal with sin. They, they were, in fact, a shadow. A pattern of the real thing. And that's why God told Moses, when he revealed all the details and all the schematics of the tabernacle and, and these sacrifices, he told him, like, look at the, the real thing. Right? You're looking at the pattern? Now, now go and make it you know, real in, in, in Israel's camp. We read this in Exodus 25 verse 40. God, He tells Moses to make all of these things after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. And Moses went up on Sinai, he saw the real thing. He was given witness to the real heavenly tabernacle in the presence of the Lord. He saw these things and goes down the mountain glowing, beholding the glory of the Lord to to now implement this whole sacrificial system that was to serve as an echo, as a signpost, as that big neon blinking sign. And and we see this dynamic that that, uh, not just in the law itself, but as we continue on in the the prophets and in the Psalms, this reality uh, that these sacrifices were not the end in and of themselves. And this is why the prophets and psalms criticized and condemned Israel for all the multitude of sacrifices that they made. All right? So we read in Psalm 40 verse 6. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. What? David, what do you You've read the law. God clearly commanded and required these things. What are you talking about? Or again, he writes in Psalm fifty-one sixteen: "...for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering." We just got to be thinking, like, uh, David, go and read the law. Like, yes, yeah, so like, clearly God has some satisfaction or desire for these things, or why else would he command it? But it's not just David in the Psalms, the prophets also. So here, uh, Isaiah one eleven standing in for a lot of places in, in the prophets, where Isaiah records, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. Right? What do I care about all the sacrifices that you can make? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. So we're thinking, okay, what's going on here, God? <laughs> like you spent a lot of time, spilled a lot of ink to tell us to how we should spill a lot of blood. Right? How is it that God commands these sacrifices and says, you know, just forget it? I don't, I don't like that stuff anymore. Like, is God changing? Is he fickle in how it is that he likes to be worshipped? Did he grow out of this bloodlust to a more sophisticated religious expression? Like, is that what's going on here? No. No. The preacher of Hebrews, right? We've heard from Hebrews in the call to worship. He makes explicit what was veiled. Right? The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Never would it work that way? They were always a pointer to something greater, something better that was to come. And so Israel was to watch a mere mortal walk in to this tabernacle with blood, and somehow make atonement. Right? Use a sprinkle that to and atone for their sin. Like, okay, oh, yeah, I, I don't know but they were to do so by faith in the promises of God. So all the sacrifices that they would make day in and day out, year by year, on the day of atonement, they were to see this take place and to say, I know that this animal cannot remove my sin. I know that this animal cannot take the punishment that I deserve. It cannot remove my guilt and shame. Like That's not possible. That's an animal. It's a goat i'm an image bearer of the creator but i'm going to trust god i'm going to trust his word and hope in the coming day when god will act to decisively deal with sin that's the the framework the mindset that the people of israel that aaron especially that the kings of israel should especially have had as they made these sacrifices They should have been looking forward to that day that has come when Christ did appear once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the sacrifice of himself. And this Jesus did when he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood, the blood of bulls or of goats and calves, but means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption, not to be repeated year by year, an eternal redemption because of the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. If that sanctifies a person for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The day of atonement was always intended by God to point us to when Christ would come. This is where we're from. This is our story. This is our our heritage and lineage. Christ would do this by preparing himself not with holy linen, but a sinless life in order to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice to propitiate our sin, to propitiate God's wrath, to expiate our sin. This is what God and Christ has accomplished completely, decisively. Right? It is finished through his very own death. So how is it that we who were strangers and aliens, how is it that we have any semblance of being a part of God's people? Like, How does it make sense that Christ dies in, in our place? Well, because God has been telling this story for a very long time. It's a story that he's told us through the day of atonement. How is it that strangers and aliens like you and me can dwell in the presence of a holy God and not be obliterated by that blazing holiness? Because of the atonement of Christ. Because of what he has done for us. Because the God-man, Jesus Christ, made atonement by his very own blood. Church, may you relish this story. Would you know more profoundly where you are from? And that this understanding of your history, of your context would have its intended purpose of motivating you to flee from sin and, and to have a hope that the relationships that you think, there is no way that there can be reconciliation in that relationship. That, that I just cannot have a, a meaningful relationship with my mother like there's just no hope there. Or, or that neighbor who just is so ornery with his obsession with his fence. Like there's just no way that this can be made right. Would you look at the day of atonement and what Christ has done and say, there is hope for that relationship. Because if the greater distance has been bridged between a holy God and a sinful people like you and me, then there is hope for a horizontal relationship to be restored like that. So would we grasp and delight in this grand story that God has been doing, that we are brought in and folded into, that we would see the magnitude of our sin, and that we would delight in the greater measure of his mercy, that all manner of sin and temptation to it would lose its appeal. As we consider the great price that Christ has paid, that we would be atoned by the blood. So, Father in heaven, this truly is a work that you must do in us. This would be foolishness and rubbish to us. A bunch of bloody sacrifices that seems it seems so unsophisticated. It seems so messy. A God man That would die in our place? And that he was risen? It seems too miraculous. And it is. And it is foolishness to us if your spirit doesn't come and help us. If you don't give us new hearts, new affections, new desires to love this great story, to see how it is that we are folded in, through that very death and resurrection of Christ and the indwelling presence of your spirit. So would you help us and would you ignite in us a greater desire and passion for this good news, this great story to be made known that others might be folded in as well with us. Work in us like this and in far more ways we pray for Christ's glory. Amen.